This is the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. We talked about the latest on Putin's war in Ukraine and childcare costs in BC are about to give families a big break. But first, we're talking affordability and inflation. Gas prices are through the roof in Vancouver. Do you think the government should start cutting taxes to give average people a break on daily costs? We've been talking about inflation reaching a 40-year high and how the price of gas, your grocery bill, eating out at restaurants, how that's all gone up throughout BC and people can't afford it, right? People are adjusting their budgets across the board for it. And as we near the winter months, some people are even going to be making that call between running the heat in their house and eating. So government watchdog watchdog group Canadian Taxpayers Federation says the feds in Canada are not providing the tax relief that people need in these times. Our guest is Chris Sims, the Alberta Director and Interim BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks for having us on. All right, so what should the Canadian government be doing right now with regards to inflation? They should be doing two things. They should be cutting taxes to as many Canadians as possible on as many things as possible, and they need to stop the money printing press. And that will do two things. That will provide immediate relief uh, to people at the pumps and to people who are purchasing home heating fuel for the coming winter. Things might be a little tricky trying to get the provincial government out there in BC to do the same thing. And they also, uh, by stopping the printing press, they can help cool this inflationary monster that they've largely helped create. Okay, well, immediate relief is contentious, something that experts disagree on. Some economists argue now is not the time for breaks, right? They, they're warning that the government shouldn't intervene and that doing so, taking those checks from the government, spending them, could make inflation worse. And they're suggesting instead that individuals should take that fiscal responsibility right now and stop spending their cash. What do you say to that, Chris? Yeah, well, it wasn't the individuals who put the printing press on overdrive. That was Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister, should be cutting those folks' taxes so that they're not having to make that choice between heating and eating. Um, It's really quite mind-boggling if you step back from it and realize uh, that folks in a Western country like Canada, the year 2022, are actually going to be making those budget calls. Like, that's pretty crazy. And so this is the responsibility of the government. This is not the fault of the people. We have to also keep in mind that along with inflation, uh, we've got interest rates going up because now, of course, the central bankers are panicking, going, oh, wait, inflation actually is a real thing and people are getting bit. And how are we going to tame this monster? Let's jack up interest rates, even though we said we weren't going to do so. And they said so before parliamentary committees. So if folks are getting frustrated by their leadership, they're seeing especially out of Ottawa, they have every right to be. And other countries have done good things in order to uh, cut fuel taxes, for example. There's tons of them. Right now, um, the federal government, depending on the province, could reduce fuel costs by 18 to 30 cents per litre. Other countries have made these sorts of moves, uh, places like the United Kingdom, South Korea, Germany, Netherlands, Italy, Ireland, Israel, India. Like, there's tons of places. We have them all up on our website. And my colleague, Franco Terrazano, he's the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. He's also an economics expert. He's the one that wrote this piece. And he has links to all of these countries uh, that have reduced taxes. And so Canada can do the same thing. Ottawa just isn't bothering yet. 
So specifically, when you say that other countries are doing things that we should be doing, what should we focus on that other countries are doing? If we could change one thing, what would it be? What would you put pressure on the government to do? If I could somehow wave a wand and get uh, British Columbia, for example, to do something, I would get them to scrap both of their carbon taxes, like today. And you would save around 27 cents per liter at the pump. And you'd also save a lot of money on your natural gas bill. And for folks who are up north, who live in more remote locations, who still use propane for their home heating, and lots of folks still do that, you'd also save a lot of money for your home heating. I think that would help a lot of people. Also, uh, that would help your grocery bill because everything that we eat, of course, is brought to us on a train or a truck or both. And diesel, of course, is subject to both carbon taxes in British Columbia. You guys have the highest ones out there. It's really a staggering price. Yeah. And whereas throughout Canada, grocery prices are starting to level and not in B.C., we're continuing to see those hikes here. Now, you mentioned fuel consumption. Interestingly, uh, some economists hope that if there were no breaks there and customers are still paying just as much as they were uh, last week and the month before for gas, maybe it goes up a little bit. They hope that individuals would just drive less and monitor their own fuel consumption, but what they're forgetting is that a lot of uh, folks don't have that choice and driving is part of their livelihood or maybe it's how they have to get to work and uh, research has shown that people have not adapted their fuel consumption all that much despite the high prices. And yet uh, there is this sense among some uh, economists that individuals should think seriously about how they, their individual choices, affect the overall economy. And maybe at winter, that means wear sweaters at home. What do you think of that, Chris? Wear sweaters. You know, I just, I'm trying to not get angry hearing that. Um, That's pretty rich coming from economists who, in most of these cases, when I hear the folks saying things like that, they're deeply enmeshed with government. They live very hyper downtown urban lives. They're paid an enormous amount of money for their consultations that they do. They are not feeling the pinch of having to decide to wear a sweater or not or how to honestly get back and forth to work or pick their kids up from school or heat their homes. Uh, I was was once on a panel with an economist who was advising on how to create the carbon tax a couple of years ago, and he said people need to be, quote, punished for using oil and gas. This was an advisor to the Prime Minister. These are folks who do not understand what it is like to pay these bills. And I don't know about you, but I don't know any average working person that is just ripping around the downtown lower mainland of British Columbia, burning fuel for fun. Like, they don't do that. Uh, Right now, is it still over $2 a litre out where you guys are at? We are hovering at that. That's right, indeed. Yeah, that's gross. And every time you go to the gas station, you hear people wincing or trying to squeeze $20 in and thinking, oh, my gosh, is that all it's giving me after $20? I don't have enough money at the end of the week. And these folks are being told to put on a sweater. You know, these experts in these towers who are making these comments need to start understanding how normal people live. And that includes the prime minister and that includes the premier of your province. Cutting the carbon taxes will give hardworking people who are deeply in debt right now, facing increasing interest rates, some relief to get through the winter. And put on a sweater, boy, oh boy, that's going to (laughs) be beer and popcorn. Thanks so much for your thoughts, Chris. Hang in there, everybody. I know it's tough. Take care. 
Lots of stories in the news and on social media about a major change for families with young ones. The Ministry of Child Care and Education announced on Friday that most families will save four to $500 a month on their childcare. And this is something that's been talked about for years with no plan, no concrete plan, as families make the tough decision of whether to not, in some cases, even re-enter the labour force after having kids. But now things have changed. So to talk more about this with us is Ravi Alon, Minister of Jobs, Economic Recovery and Innovation. Minister, thanks for being with us. Good morning, Rajiv. Thank you for having me. Okay, so watching this story unfold in the news was one thing, but my social media feed was another because I am in that uh, age group where I've got littles in uh, childcare and a lot of people in my community do, and I was just seeing scores of parents breathe a sigh of relief uh, hearing that maybe this meant they could go back to work. Uh, Maybe this meant that they'd have a chance at getting into the housing market. What is your hope for how this program is going to actually work on the ground? Well, this is big. Um, And my little ones are just past that age. uh, But I'm happy for those that are coming through behind because uh, we know that uh, childcare is one of the biggest costs that families are facing. And, and, you know, we've got rising global inflation and the pressures uh, that are coming with that. And so seeing fees come down between 400 and 550 dollars is, is massive and so our hope is not only that this will help families with their bottom line uh, but we're also hoping this means more people will take that make that decision to enter into the labor market again so how will it work on the ground because is it based upon income in any way Correct. So right now it's based on uh, the the 96% of all childcare providers have registered uh, with the province over the last few years. We've been reducing costs uh, every every year. Uh, and so now the costs will go directly to the provider. The providers have also agreed not to raise the costs for families uh, no higher than 3% a year. So it's an arrangement that is made directly with the providers. And, uh, I, you know, most families will see it right away on December 1st. Uh, and we've recommended to people, if they've got questions, they can call their uh, provider, child care provider, directly to find out how much of their savings is. Okay, so you don't expect to see, given your 3% increase policy, providers suddenly go, oh, families are getting a cut, we're going to increase our prices. Okay, so that's interesting to know. Um, But help us understand, if this is not based on income, some people will hear that and they're going to think, well, shouldn't it be? Shouldn't a couple that, you know, earns a combined income of 300,000 pay the full price of childcare? Well, the system that we have in the province is very complicated. Uh, We've got some not-for-profit systems. We've got some providers that uh, are are for-profit, and the system is very dispersed. So uh, we have looked at uh, an income-tested model, but we know during inflation and uh, the pressures families are facing, this is the way to get the most direct support to people right away. Now, there are other... Uh, incentives and supports we have for very low-income families, those supports will continue. And so the folks who are the most vulnerable, uh, uh, that need the support the most, uh, are in fact getting additional incentives 
so it has that element built into it, but everyone gets some level of support through this program. Okay, so Minister, let's also talk supply and demand, because as I mentioned before, more people are likely to opt into the system because it's becoming more affordable. Does the province currently have enough licensed daycare spaces? Well, we projected that as well. And when we were building out the child care plan, uh, when we first formed government, we knew we had a problem. The first problem was no one even knew where child care spots were in communities, what the need was, what the demand was. We took that first step. We knew that at the same time we'd have to uh, fire, find more people to work in this field. Uh, so we raised the rates of ECE workers so that they could make a, a better wage so we could attract more workers into it, increase training spots. We have now funded 30,000 new child care spots. About 10,000 of those are online and 20,000 new spots we expect in the next two years to come online. Uh, so they're funded, they're there, they're just coming online because we expect that. We expect more people to say, hey, um, you know, I'm going to take the, this opportunity to put my kids into child care. It's good for children with child development, but it's also good because more people are going to come back into the labor market. And right now we have a real, real tight labor market and we could use people very badly. So when this news was announced, I did make some calls out to some licensed daycare centers. I talked to people who run those facilities and I asked them what their concerns were. And we know already that currently childcare facilities struggle to retain staff, but they did tell me that was the resounding uh, thing that came up for all those folks. It was just one of the reasons that staff retention is a challenge for childcare work is because the childcare work is really hard. You know, it's physical work, it's emotional work, it's very demanding, and it doesn't pay that well. And even a slight pay increase now is not going to make it commensurate with, balanced with how much work it entails. You talk to any childcare provider and they'll tell you that staff retention is their biggest issue. So any plans to do something substantial around that? Well, uh, you're bang on, and we know that that's a challenge. That's why over the last few years we've been raising uh, the rates every single year to try to make sure that uh, people are getting paid uh, at least close to the value of the work that they're doing. We know that was they're way underpaid uh, for the work they were doing. So uh, we've been taking some steps not only to increase the wages, but also increase the training spots available for people that want to take those opportunities. We also know that there's uh, a lot of people who um, uh, have immigrated to Canada who also uh, would like to get into this field. So we've also put some programs in place to provide some training opportunities for new immigrants to take these opportunities. So it's going to require um, a lot of measures all at once, and we're working on all of those. And, you know, the agreement that we signed with the federal government uh, is, is a big step because uh, before we were trying as a province to go at it alone, uh, knowing that the federal government is coming in on it and there's a uh, agreed-upon plan on how this will roll out, it means that this plan will be more successful uh, in, a, in a faster way. Right. Minister Callan, thank you so much for your time this morning. Yeah, thank you for having me, Rajiv. Stay safe. All right, it's time for us to talk about the Russia-Ukraine war. On March 8 of this year, in a televised message, Putin told Russians there will be no draft of reservists. Fast forward to today, there is partial mobilization. Of course, we saw those sold-out flights from Russia. There's been nuclear saber 
rattling, and the Kremlin is calling up 300,000 reservists in what is their first military draft since the Second World War. All of this for what it's still calling a special military operation. Let's not forget they're holding sham referendums and dishing out more threats of nuclear warfare. My guest is Melinda Herring. She's the deputy director of the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Hello, Melinda. Hi, good morning, Raji. Great to be with you. Oh, thanks so much for being here. So, Melinda, you heard my intro there. It just, is Putin becoming desperate now? So Putin does not have a good hand. We are seven months in. February 24th is the date that your uh, listeners will remember when Russia decided to go into Ukraine once again and try to take over the country in a matter of days. And it failed. That was phase one, trying to take the city of Kiev and push out Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. So they retreated from Kiev. They went to eastern Ukraine. And they probably came out on top there, but it's sort of a stalemate. And then they moved to phase three of the war, and the Ukrainians are pushing back in a counteroffensive and trying to retake the south in the east of Ukraine. And the Ukrainians are doing really, really well. So Putin's, Putin's out of really good options at this point, and he's really stuck his neck out. I didn't think he was going to mobilize because Putin is someone who likes stability, Uh, And he likes order. And by doing this partial mobilization, which is a misnomer, we should talk about that in a minute. But by doing this, he's unleashing forces in society that he can't control. Why is partial mobilization a misnomer? So on Wednesday, Putin called it partial mobilization. But if you look at the actual documents, the word partial is not there. The document is very expansive. And there's rumors that it's not 300,000, that he may be calling up to 1.2 million is some of the rumors in the Russian papers. Yeah, it would seem that way. There's this sudden ramping of tactics that seems almost chaotic. And in an article for the Atlantic Council, you write that partial mobilization wouldn't make that much of a difference anyway because soldiers would have to undergo extensive training first. And then the BBC has reported that the Kremlin is releasing prisoners from Russian jail to fight in the war. They're pulling people straight from their work site and putting them on buses and sending them off to war. People who have never fought before and have zero training. If this kind of uh, forced uh, soldiering up of them is, is futile, then why is Putin bothering Putin is fully committed to what he started on February 24th, and it goes back beyond February 24th. There's a wonderful article that I would recommend uh, on the Carnegie Endowment's website. It's called Putin's Unfinished Business, and it's by my friend Andrew Weiss. And what he says, basically, is that Putin wants to go down in history as a great Russian leader. So he's trying to regather what he sees as historic Russian territory. He thinks Ukraine belongs to him, and he wants to destroy Ukraine. That's what this is fundamentally about. He wants to rewrite the rules of the the European security architecture. That's fancy Washington language for he wants to be in charge of how uh, peace and war are are fought in Europe. And he wants to destroy NATO's unity. We saw that he's failed on that. And he would love to humiliate the West. Those are his four goals. That's what he set out to do in February. And even though he's not winning right now, he's fully committed to those goals and he's changing his tactics. But uh, like, like we've talked about, he's, he's not doing very well and he feels very desperate. 
As you know, Melinda, there have also been these major protests across Russia. More than 700 people were arrested in protests against a military call-up. These are people who are refusing to fight. And then people will go to jail as a result. Uh, others are desperately trying to flee. Uh, Finland, we've learned, has since closed their borders. And mm-hmm. then right, Reuters, the news agency, is reporting that these lineups to get into Finland are just filled with people who don't know what to do now. Where does the partial mobilization leave, do you think, the, the ordinary population of Russia? Okay, Raji, it's we got to step back. It's it's not they're not major protests. Russia has 140 million people, right? And I think it's helpful to look at Belarus in 2020 when 10 percent of Belarusians came out to the street, and there was no change. Russians know this, and there was a harsh, harsh crackdown. Russians know this, and they're already being punished for coming out. There's this is a society where if you stick your neck out, you will be trampled. Uh, so. When Putin announced earlier this year that he was going into Ukraine, an estimated 300,000 to 3.8 million left. That was in February, March. That was earlier this year. These people, on average, were 32 years old, and they had higher education, and they moved to Turkey, Georgia, and Armenia. Some of them have come back. This new group of people that are getting out, we don't have good numbers. You know, we see pictures, but this is not going to lead to some kind of big societal change. I think we need to stop engaging in magical thinking. That's not how Russia is going to change. People are desperate uh, to get out because the word is out. They know that fighting in Ukraine is intense and they don't have the, the sufficient training, as you described, to be fighting. And they don't see the point of it. Something really interesting happened this last week on Russian state TV. People are starting to openly criticize the quote-unquote special military operation for, for uh, the first time in, in many months. So the word is out, even though Russian television is state-controlled. People don't want to die in Ukraine, and they don't understand uh, why Vladimir Putin is so insistent on this war. It doesn't make sense to them. Melinda, I just want to talk a bit closer about something that you just mentioned there. Do you think then that the protests are being exaggerated no, I don't think they're being exaggerated. So I, I, I'm not trying to criticize Western media. We have a really, Russia's a black box right now, and we should be completely open about what we do know and what we don't know. So I've had all these sort of speculative discussions. You know, we're engaging in criminology once again because we simply don't have very much information. And Putin is acting, I think he's, he's acting in a more emotional, unhinged way than he has in the past. So it's very hard to predict his behavior. But on, on the, the mobilization versus the referenda and the nuclear threats, so everyone is focused on mobilization. And my argument there is don't focus on mobilization. Focus on the referenda and the annexation. What's happening over the weekend is that Russian soldiers and Russian officials are going door to door in four big provinces of Ukraine, and they're demanding that Ukrainian citizens vote for annexation, that their sovereign territory become part of Russia. They don't want to do it, but they're being forced to vote. What that means, Raji, is that these four provinces are going to come under Moscow's nuclear umbrella. This means Vladimir Putin is saying, these are mine. If Ukraine tries to retake this territory, I, 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 it's, it's bad news. He, he's, he's saying, I will protect these territories with my, with my nuclear umbrella. And he's, he's betting that the West isn't going to. And he's right. That's why the situation is getting really scary. And some of your colleagues have written about the West's response. What do you think needs to happen from the international powers at this point? So I'm going to quote the great Lithuanian foreign minister, Landsbergis. He says, don't blink. So we need to remain firm 
and committed to Ukraine and send them all the weapons that they need. The U.S. has done a great job and the Canadians are doing a good job uh, and the Brits are doing a good job, but we have not sent the long-range missiles that the Ukrainians are asking for. And, and the White House is afraid uh, of, of World War III and nuclear escalation. You know, a lot of this, a lot of analysts think that Putin is just talking a big game and he's bluffing. And I think that's likely right, uh, but there is a chance that he's not. We need to keep sending these, these weapons, though, to get the war over as soon as possible. And they're asking for more high Mars as well. These are the long-range systems, uh, missiles that the United States has sent over. We've sent over about 18. Uh, and the people I talk to on the ground say the Ukrainians need another 60 to be able to end this war. There's a, there's a long list of equipment that the Ukrainians have asked for. And the U.S. has been uh, too late uh, to the game, it, it, where it takes us about three weeks longer than it should. We sit around and debate and pretend this is law school uh, when this is a real war. Uh, neither side, uh, neither the Ukrainian side nor Moscow, show any signs of sitting down at the negotiating table. So I, I know that this is sort of a perverse way to say it, but if you want peace, you have to you have to enable the Ukrainians to win on the battlefield as soon as possible, and you do that by giving them all of the military equipment and the intelligence support that they need now. Okay, Melinda, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.